This is Suchitra Vijayan and you're joining us for the Polish Projects Conversation Series. Since 2017, we've hosted a diverse selection of scholars, writers, artists, activists and many others who have joined us in this conversation to discuss some of the most important issues and events affecting the world today. Some of our guests include Somali-Canadian writer Hassan Giri Santor, author of Tear Gas Anna Fiegenbaum, feminist theorist and actor Zilla Eisenstein, historian and professor Romila Thapar, member of the National Assembly of Pakistan, Moshin Dawar, and Sudanese student activist Ala Satir, and many, many others. Joining us today to discuss his new book is Delhi-based journalist Dinesh Narayanan. Dinesh Narayanan previously was the Delhi bureau chief of Forbes India magazine and wrote for the Economic Times. His new book, RSS and the Making of the Deep Nation, is an important historical intervention given the circumstances in India today. The book, through in-depth research and interviews, looks closely at the beginnings of the Rashtra Swayam Sevak Sangh, its relationship to Bharatiya Janata Party, and perhaps the reasons for the ongoing violence, and it also focuses on the strategies of its main figures in the past and present day, including Vidi Sarvarkar and Mohan Bhagat. Dinesh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Suchitra. Thank you so much. Uh, and glad, uh, glad to be here. The title of the book is a play on the concept of the deep state, which itself has quite a history. Its initial meaning is alluding to the hold of the secular military had over Turkish politics. But in the book, you also interpret state to be nation as a way of introductory context. What do you mean by these terms, especially the word that you use in the book? And why was it important for you to view the RSS within this framework? But also, what are the political consequences of this kind of extensive control of deep nation? Right. Um... Well, uh, I keep getting this question about the about the title of the book. Now, um, in a sense, um, let me give a little bit of a context of the book itself to explain this better. Um, one of my objectives to, uh, in writing this book was to, it, it, it is clearly a, a journalistic pursuit. It is not an academic work, or I don't consider it as an academic work. I consider it more as a journalistic work. I'm a journalist and... Uh, my skill is in reporting and presenting the presenting the facts there, and uh, let the reader uh, make their own conclusions. And one of the things which I observed, and as you know, it is um, difficult to get uh, RSS people to talk. Uh, but I I'm, I'm I'm quite glad that I succeeded in um, getting some of them to open up and. Uh, explain to me from their perspective what they mean by state, what they mean by nation, why is it important to them that it be defined in a particular way, etc., etc. So um, the title of the book comes from uh, their perspective and their interpretation of the state and nation, and of course, uh, my analysis of that. Um there are very few organizations, practically none, which you can really compare the RSS with in the world. One of the organizations which uh, uh, which we can probably compare, uh, but not exactly a comparison itself, which is that uh, Japanese conference, Nippon Kaigai, uh, which has also contributed political leaders and uh, leaders in society in Japan. Um, but even that doesn't have the elaborateness or sophistication or the longevity of the RSS. RSS is going to complete nearly a, a century. And throughout this, um, throughout this uh, century-long organization building, they have stuck to the, some of the original concepts they have had uh, and the framework they have had. They have hardly moved from that. One of them is the concept of the of the nation as they define it, and in in their concept, it it is very different from the nation state of the European uh, European concept of uh, nation state, and uh, and what they envisage of a future nation, what they envision of the future nation, is not really 
uh, or themselves in that nation is not really an organization which is present in that in that uh, or exists in that country, um, not even as a dominant organization in this country, but an organization which would convert even the last person of the country of the nation to its ideology, which means it is there is no difference, uh, there is no. There is no opposition, there is no dilution, there is no there is no distraction from the ideological project once the project is complete. It cannot be challenged after that because every single citizen, every single person in the in, in the nation is uh, does subscribe to the RSS ideology. So you see the uh, the the consequence of that is that the political consequence of that is that if that ambition is fructified, of course, it is very difficult to fructify in a nation as diverse as uh, India. But there will hardly be any politics. I mean, as we understand politics as a continuous negotiation between um, diverse, even contradictory interests, uh, that negotiation ceases after that, if once the project is complete. So when the RSS talks of man-making or national character in individuals and institutions, it is essentially talking of embedding a certain ideological DNA in each person. Um, in fact, in this year's annual report in, the, in, in March, uh, when the annual report was presented, it is pledged to relentlessly work in pursuit of complete, complete victory. That's what they call it. So that is the context in which I've used the term deep nation. It's so deep and it's so vast and it's it's complete in its uh, in the way it encompasses the uh, the whole the whole uh, geographical entity, if you may want to call it that. That's why deep nation. You also, in, you know, I know that you said that this is a book, a journalistic book. It's not a book of academic research, but the book also has. Uh, you use post-colonial scholars like Ashish Nandi and others who have extensively written about fascism in India. Why and how was the work of these scholars important in making your way through such an extensive archive of constantly contradictory material? Um, well, one of the reasons is that um, the works of many post-colonial writers, like you mentioned, Ashish Nandi, have helped me in understanding uh, from an academic perspective as well. You know, some of what I've observed while reporting on the RSS. So I've used them for also for information, which have bolstered my own reporting uh, after confirming what I was seeing uh, on the ground. Uh, and when talking to people within the organization, within the parivar, uh, everywhere. I mean, there were several uh, several um, aha moments when uh, you read uh, people like Ashish Nandi. So, for example, um, there was always this uh, this 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 notion, and I kept getting this feeling from whenever you talk to people in the RSS that the Ayodhya movement, for example, was um, was necess not necessarily a religious movement. It was. It was not a. It was more a, a national movement. They consider um, Ram as a national hero, not as a god. But uh, the larger population considers Ram as, as as a god, not necessarily a national leader. So they made a distinction. Where I mean, in fact, uh, that distinction even Savarkar makes that uh, distinction. Savarkar says Savarkar, in fact, conceives the Hindu nation as being formed the day when uh, Ram conquers uh, 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 conquers Sri Lanka and then comes back and uh, is is uh, enthroned in Ayodhya. That is the day in his conception that Ram has unified the the nation. So. Um, so it was very interesting when I was reading the, uh, the this book by Ashish Nandi, Time Warp and the Insistent Politics of uh, Silent and Evasive Pass. Um, he he writes of an encounter with the chief priest of Ayodhya in the 1980s when the temple movement was really gathering momentum. So the chief priest uh, of the Ramjan Bhumi temple there, uh, in fact, he was murdered soon after the mosque was raised. Um, he uh, said in 90 around 1991 um, that in the in the seven preceding years no major political leader of the ramjan bhumi movement 
had cared to worship at the temple. He said there was only one person who did and uh, she got a puja done without herself visiting the temple itself. So there were these these nuggets as well, which I was looking for, uh, and and the, and and the, also the the uh, there is a lot of uh, comparison and contradiction as well. So while um, Ashishnandi observes that you know that uh, that there is there is a certain envy of the global success of the West, and. Uh, and he and, and and the organization itself in some way wants that approval in some way that uh, here is uh, here is a civilization and acknowledgement of that civilization acknowledgement of traditions acknowledgement of um, scientific inquiry uh, so you see you see you, you keep seeing these things pop- popping up every now and then in the popular narrative as well uh, someone like uh, mahatma gandhi was more comfortable in his skin you know, he had very clear ideas of how the civilizations differed, and he had very clear ideas of why, uh, for example, you should not ape the West. And he 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 says it very clearly. Um, at the same time, like for example, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, he observes that uh, we keep blaming our miseries and shortcomings on the historical surprises that burst upon us from outside. So for some reason, there is there is a sense of victimhood as well as a sense of the need for acknowledgement from outside. It, it remains there. And uh, by, by, by uh, people like Ashish Nandi and, uh, and others have helped me understand this thing. And there's also a contradiction, for instance, uh, not a contradiction, really. Um, generally, the RSS is, uh, is referred to sometimes as a fascist organization. Uh, but say uh, Christoph Jafferlo uh, disagrees with that viewpoint. He says he doesn't call it a fascist organization. He says that it doesn't have the uh, classical traits of fascist organizations. So he says it, it cannot be called that. So while I was reporting um, and when I was analyzing my own reporting, some of these uh, scholars' works did help me contextualize those report uh, that reporting as well as... Uh, uh, place them in the right context, make help me understand it from the right perspective. So that is how these books help me. From an organization that was responsible for killing uh, Mahatma Gandhi to one that is now seen as integral to the, the nation building process, how did the RSS rebrand itself and rebrand itself so successfully? Um, well, the first was a sort of a compromise with the state when um, they entered into extensive negotiations with uh, Sardar Patel, who was the Home Minister then, and uh, uh, tried to with Nehru as as well, um, and then finally agreeing to have a written constitution. That was the first. Uh, that was how they uh, sort of uh, compromised with the state. Um, the second was building a political profile. So, um, Bala Sahib Devras, uh, who was the uh, Sarsanga Chalak after Golwalkar, he had once said this, that this, the RSS felt uh, quite alone when it was implicated uh, in the Gandhi murder case and Golwalkar was arrested. So that was a time when they felt that they needed political protection and they needed people in assemblies and people in parliament speaking for them. And so they started building a political profile. And uh, as you know, the Jansang was established with uh, Shah Prasad Mukherjee. And of course, after Jansang, through the BJP. Uh, and in fact, uh, in fact, RSS had also made an made an attempt to be part of the congress party in rss has always wanted to be part of the congress party party at least that's what i i felt because congress was this big tent which had uh, everybody from across the board all kinds of opinions all kinds of interests which were there in that big tent and uh, uh, but it was not possible for the rss until nehru was alive and immediately after nehru's death 
Um, I found a report, uh, I think it was a Patriot newspaper, which had reported that just after Nehru's death, the RSS leadership had approached um, uh, Shastri uh, seeking positions in the in the Congress. Now, it was obviously not a confirmed report or anything like that, but clearly there would have been some overtures because um, some RSS leaders like Eknath Ranade were extremely well-networked in Delhi, across political parties, um, and later when the Topant Tengri um, he he went to the Rajya Sabha. He was, in fact, expressly asked by Golwalkar to build bridges with parliamentarians, other parliamentarians of other parties, and build a network within parliament and uh, across political parties. So that was, uh, that was another way of uh, legitimizing. And the third was emergency. Emergency very clearly gave them a lot of, uh, a lot of mileage, a lot of... Um, uh, legitimacy, for instance, and uh, in fact, in fact, uh, I think it's. Uh, I heard one of the podcasts you did with um, Gyan Prakash, where he says that you know, RSS came out as victims smelling of roses, which is pretty much what happened after the emergency. And they also managed to create linkages with other entities and organizations, including. Uh, the left parties uh, during the emergency while uh, in jail. And the fourth was social service. So social service was something which was again a strategy, again started by Devaras. And uh, now social service is one of the, uh, their Seva wing uh, is one of their biggest entities, in fact, running uh, lakhs of uh, projects and programs. And that has grown into a Behemoth, which so the advantage with that is that it helps them connect on the ground and this ground level activism, everyday contact. These can easily be converted to electoral returns. You know, scholars like Tariq Tachil have written about it. You know, how they have patiently earned uh, voter goodwill uh, rather than you know developing transactional relationships. In fact, many of the political parties have slipped into transactional relationships and that has eroded their base as well, which is clearly visible in India. Now, um, but service was, was quite, uh, they were quite well positioned in doing the service also because it, it was a highly disciplined organization. So, they could mobilize at a short notice. They could do many things with their organization, and the and this good this could easily be converted. This goodwill could easily be converted into electoral returns among beneficiaries and some even non-beneficiaries through the networks of friends, associates, um, and even a political residence of high local standing, which they do even now. So, for example, one of the things which they do is some perk program, as they call contact program, where the top RSS leaders meet with the elite of the society, whenever they visit a city, even a village, they meet with them. Uh, they introduce the organization. They talk to them about the organization. So these could be business leaders, artists. These could be anyone, anyone, the cream of the society. So that's the, the, the contact program from their perspective has been very successful. And it has, it has helped them legitimize. It has helped them gain friends. <clears throat> both in high places and both in society. And uh, Devras clearly believe that, you know, the after the Gandhi murder case, the organization had lost a lot of time and it should it should it should create opportunities even to expand its work and reach and which is what happened. You briefly mentioned the emergency when talking about the rebranding. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about what happened during the emergency and how did the RSS leverage this moment as a way, um, as, as Gyan Prakash says, come, came out smelling as roses? So the, the, the period which um, led up to the emergency is also an interesting period, right? So in 1971, after the war, Indira Gandhi came back with one of the biggest majorities uh, which uh, Indian, India had seen. And she was extremely powerful and uh, she was also extremely uh, antagonistic to the RSS. Um, uh, post, the, post the elections, uh, gradually there was a certain 
discontent which had begun and for many years this was not acknowledged rss had never acknowledged that it its its uh, pracharaks were even involved in the emergency its its people were even involved in the emergency or um, activities before the emergency which is the bihar chhatra andolan and the gujarat movement um so um until i heard it from govindacharya in detail how he himself was there present there uh, on the ground coordinating the the protests uh, working with other other political other student leaders in organizing those protest or uh, protests and uh, liaising with jp uh, uh, to and 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 urging him to lead a movement so in a sense in their telling now the 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 entire protest was pretty much owned by them which was not the case when it actually happened and later it was not presented as that 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 acknowledgement has come only now and now since the emergency is seen as this dark period in in, uh, in the in the democratic history of this country and uh, rss is seen as the heroes of that emergency who resisted along with others um, i mean the entire spectrum apart from uh the congress party the entire opposition opposition was arraigned against the establishment but um, the rss had capitalized on that it 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 uh, created it built alliances while its leaders were in jail um even uh, even with the with the left parties and which which benefited them when they formed a, when the jansang uh, became a coalition partner in the post emergency Uh, government the morarji desai government so uh, which which gave them the first taste of power at the center as well so the the advantages of the of the emergency are manifold for the rss recently uh, as recently as yesterday the alhabad high court said that cows should be given fundamental rights and it should be declared a national animal and the question of the holy cow um has become yeah. a core issue for the rss it's also become a kind of a bogeyman but what is also interesting is that the the movement was also an early anti colonial movement which the rss kind of takes and rebrands for its own purposes talk to us about why the holy cow is so important to rss so um um again i i look at rss as uh, how does the organization function one of its key strengths and ability and one of the skills which it has developed is the skill to mobilize uh it doesn't matter what the purpose is it can still mobilize because the way the organization is structured the way the organization is built it is it is it is it is very uh organized like a military like an army so that uh, when the commander commands the rest follow they 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 don't think they have to follow and that helps a lot in mobilization and if you uh, the one of the first times one of the first uh, agitational sort of uh, <clears throat> movements which the rss created uh, was the anti cow slaughter movement of the 60s where uh, the rss uh, collected uh, went on a signature campaign throughout the country and uh, and in 1966 um, the movement sort of and uh, culminated in a huge rally in delhi led by naga sadhus parliament which ended up in total chaos in the capital and police firing and deaths happened all those things happened and uh, i have mentioned this in the book as well that uh, the government set up a committee just a sarkar committee to look into the issue of uh, cow slaughter um rss chief golwalkar was also a member of the committee and interestingly we know about what happened on the committee from the from uh, vargis kurians uh, amul founder vargis kurians uh, uh biography so uh, he recalls that 
he and Golwalkar had become good friends, and uh, there was a Shankaracharya also on the on the on the on the committee. But the Shankaracharya and Varghese Kurian always used to have a quite an antagonistic relationship. But Golwalkar at the same time was quite friendly with uh, Kurian, and in fact, he even told him to ignore the Shankaracharya. He has his issues, but. Uh, and then one day he uh, Korean tells the story that how Golwalkar uh, explains to him why he started the campaign and it was like bordering on the cynical you know he 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 first said that he started the uh, the petition to actually embarrass the government um, they they collected a million signature to submit to the president and he said he he looked at the cow as a potential. Uh, to unify the country and uh, you know uh, he said he could use it as a as a cultural symbol and uh, use it for again mobilization and his point was that if cow slaughter was banned and the committee recommended banning cow slaughter that would have given him uh, another mobilizational instrument and that could have uh, that could have gone in a very different way Interestingly, um, uh, one of the one of the uh, problems with with uh, what RSS faces is that uh, Hindu religion is not really a, a congregational religion. It is it is divided into sects. There are various sects. There are various paths or sampradayas, as they call it, or various paths. There is no congregational power really, and there is, and because of that, there is no political consolidation, and which is what Golwalkar wanted to create. He wanted to create a consolidated block, which could, again, like the organization itself, would move according to the dictates of the organization. Now, this was becoming very difficult, and they were experimenting with various issues. One of them was the cow at that at that at that point. But the problem with that was that it had traction in the north, especially in the in the uh, in UP and Bihar and all that. But it did not have that much traction in the south, and so it could not be it could not be used as a nationwide uh, issue. And uh, that sort of that sort of uh, uh, it did test out whether it can get them get them closer to political power and. Uh, to some extent, we could say that it may have because of uh, the 67 Samyukta uh, government in 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 UP uh, happened after that. So the the problem it was facing at that point of time also is that like Walter Anderson and all right in their book that um, the strong communities which existed in Indian villages was a great bulwark against. Uh, RSS's organization. They were not able to break into villages much, uh, unlike urban centers. So for a long, long time, it remained an urban uh, phenomenon and uh, an organization which was limited to cities and towns, but not able to penetrate into villages. One of the reasons uh, I think uh, it, was, it was quite well put by them that it was because of the community fabric of villages that they were not able to do so. And this is something which, which was, they were trying out whether the cow could be one of the those instruments which can uh, break that community fabric or tear that community fabric and then help in consolidating different uh, sects and sampradayas and, and communities together. And talking about communities... Talk to us about Ayodhya in terms of how RSS used and again consolidated this issue. But also one of the things you talk about in local communities is that when you were doing your reporting, did you see any kind of a natural resistance to uh, the RSS on the ground level? Um, well, there, there is... Uh, there is resistance to the RSS, but most of the resistance is... Um, either passive nowadays, either passive, or it is uh, it is it is limited to other political formations or other other formations, uh, even if they are apolitical. 
um, so civil society for instance but otherwise otherwise i don't see too much of resistance on the ground which is quite quite uh, uh, not really quite surprising because you know one of the one of the things what happened post liberalizations is also that uh, if the rss was not able to break the community walls which which existed in villages liberalization did it for for the organization so post liberalization you can see this these community walls and the that fabric tearing apart in villages and small towns of india which gives them an opportunity to enter because there are a lot of insecurities which are suddenly unleashed there are a lot of uh, economic socio economic uh, churn that happened uh, post liberalization and you can see the rss itself dabbling in that you know looking uh, joining with the left in the enron movement so there are a lot of those areas which they experimented with and then made their entry into smaller towns and villages and expanded quite fast in fact um, also the rss has always benefited from political power whenever they have got political power whether it is in the state or nationally the organization has always expanded quickly i hope i answer your question there of course we've there's a lot of discussion about rss as a political ideology but what is the economic ideology that underpins sang given that there are if you look at the history of the sang there are multiple economic threads and multiple ideologies talk to us about how the sang now thinks about its economic ideology as against its political ideology well um again the former sarsangachalak devras had once commented that rss hardly has an economic ideology they have not thought much about economics and uh, um, so that has sort of plagued the rss for a very long time they had sort of uh, um, not thought about it themselves even though individuals within the <coughs> sorry even though um, individuals within the organizations uh, within the organization have attempted some uh, theses uh, like datopan uh, thengdi who wrote the third way um, also uh, a person called mg bokare um, and recently uh, a person called pajrang uh, lal gupta uh, he also wrote a book called mangalam economics um the problem which rss has faced is that the first first sort of economic fr- framework was uh, created by dindyal upadhyay when uh, for the jansang it, that that was in uh, 1957 um again that was that continues to be the guiding guiding light for the sang parivar as you can see when many schemes are named after dindyal upadhyay uh the government people in the government keep talking about integral humanism so there is a there is a certain lack of uh, if you want to call it deep understanding of uh, economics or a a a a hesitation to accept modern economics as something which they can embrace which is the which is the which is the uh, which is what narendra modi broke for the rss in a sense so it, 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 even now the old timers in the rss are very uncomfortable with what they call the corporatization of the sangh so for instance the other day when uh, kalyan singh passed away one of the uh, one senior person in the sangh had uh, had a chat with him and he said one of the reasons kalyan singh never really rose in the excellence of power within the sang or the larger sang parivar not sang really but in the bjp and and the parivar per se was because he did not have much corporate backing and this he said in contrast to someone like atal bihari vajpayee he said atal bihari vajpayee for example was backed by all the big corporates in the country <coughs> now this was a 
very this is a very interesting statement because he also said that just before uh, Vajpayee was elected uh, as prime minister, not in ninety six, but later, I think it was in ninety. It, it, he was talking about the ninety eight elections or ninety nine elections. At that time, um, a bunch of corporates. He mentioned some twenty twenty five corporates had placed in, placed advertisements in newspapers felicitating the prime minister which he showed as proof that uh, how Vajpayee was loved by the corporate sector and how Vajpayee's rise then was inevitable. So this this mistrust of uh, uh, companies and multinational corporations and America and Europe has existed in the RSS psyche for a very long time. And one of the persons who has who has been bitterly opposed to even computerization in the 90s was Tatopan Thengri. And he was, as long as Thengri was alive, um, this stream of thought had the upper hand in the sunk. Um, even, even the Swadeshi Jagran Manch was established uh, on, at, at, at the eve of uh, liberalization, uh, Manmohan Singh's uh, liberalization. Until then, there was no organization which was which you could call really a, an economic organization which uh, handled economic issues. So it muddled along like that uh, without really having any clear vision for uh, the country's economy. In the in the late nineties, uh, when Vajpayee was in power, just before the Vajpayee government came to power. They also created a document, an action plan, a blueprint for what they call the Swadeshi uh, economics, Swadeshi economic policy or Swadeshi blueprint for India. Um, but that policy was ditched as soon as the government came to power. Nobody heard of it after that. I mean, the, many people have said uh, within the RSS, some people who have worked uh, on that policy later have complained that um, these are all for show. We don't really have a policy. We just tow the line, whatever the whatever the prime minister says. And that thought continues even today. A large section of the of of the RSS, especially the uh, the older guard, believes that India's economic policy are not aligned with the RSS ideology and uh, what their vision for the country is. So that certainly is uh, there is a there is a discord within the organization of the policies. I want to now talk about the question of caste within the RSS, and the question of caste also seems to have remained quite a contradiction for the RSS. On one hand, as you spoke about, there is this need to embed a singular kind of Hindu DNA across the country, and yet the entire social base of the RSS seems to quite remain casteist and hostile to the political and social assertions of the many Dalit and Bahujan communities. Where do you see the question of caste now within um, the RSS's project? Um, well, it is, it, it is an issue which they have been grappling for a long time and they have not been able to get their arms around it and they still don't have a clear answer to it. From whomever I have spoken to, they have none of them have a clear answer to it because um, one of the reasons for that is that um, the organization doesn't really, really enforce change in many places even if even if it is something which they want to be changed even then it doesn't enforce change because it is it per se is uh, how do i put it so for example um one of the reasons why uh, the ram temple got precedence over any other issues within the country for instance uh was because the Ram Temple was in Ayodhya and Ayodhya is in UP. And UP was very key to political power. Um, now, having, having done that, that it is going to be an issue for mobilization, then the, then the thing was that you had, to, you had to accept a certain um, a cultural context and a certain 
tradition from the state itself for it to resonate. And that is why the Ram Charit Manas, which is an, uh, is an Avdi, is one of the uh, more popular Ramayanas within the RSS or within the Sangha Parivar, not any other Ramayana. It is not, for example, the uh, a Marathi Ramayana. It is not a Marathi Ramayana, which is more popular. It is the Ram Charit Manas, which is more popular. So in a sense, it is very, very hesitant to get into the uh, into caste politics uh, as as uh, RSS as an organization. But BJP doesn't have that hesitation. RSS does have that. BJP has BJP does it in in uh, different ways, very subtly, very nuanced. But RSS doesn't. In fact, uh, in fact, uh, Mohan Bhagwat once said in a meeting with an internal meeting that uh, where somebody asked him the question about reservation. He said, "I am not going to talk about it because the moment I mention the hour of Arakshan, there will be a huge commotion. So we can't afford that." So it is very it's very reluctant to rock the boat because it also then has to invest time to damage control for example what happened in bihar at the moment it doesn't it doesn't want to upset the apple cart for the bjp in any way because they believe the B, as long as bjp is in power they have an umbrella they have a cover and they don't want to lose that cover so they would approach caste in a very very cautious manner uh, but the underlying uh, theme remains. They have many times they have said, retracted, and reiterated what their approach towards reservation is, caste-based reservation is. So, like I said, whenever I have spoken to them, whatever literature I have read, internal documents I have read, they are very uncomfortable with uh, with the existing setup, with the reservations. But they are unable to handle it. They don't know what to do about it because it is a political hot potato. You've spoken briefly about the BJP RSS um, question. How would you characterize the current BJP RSS relationship and how do you see it evolve as the Modi regime heads to the next uh, elections? Um, there is no question that the RSS wants BJP in power. And this has been clarified many times when, whenever people have asked. So, so uh, Narendra Modi is a divisive figure even within the RSS. Uh, when his name was proposed for the first time within the RSS, I think it was in 2007 or 8 as a potential prime ministerial candidate, as a potential leader of the BJP at the national level, um, there was a lot of opposition from within the RSS leadership itself. It was, I won't even say it was evenly split. It was the more people were against him than for him. This continued. This continued for a very long time. Even now, it continues. But every time, and even for the, even for organizations like the Swadeshi Jagran Manch. The Swadeshi Jagran Manch has one, had once said in 2015, I think, they had once said that what the, the economic policies of the Narendra Modi government is the policies of pain and it doesn't work, it should not work. So, despite all these uh, protestations, despite all these um, hesitations and opposition to the Prime Minister and the BJP, uh, many leaders in the BJP in general, it has never crossed a certain line, and which has been clearly told them, the organizations as well as people within the organization, been very clearly told that this is the best government we can get. We cannot afford to have another hostile government which would not only uh, stop our work, it may even be, we don't want to go back to a situation where some of our leaders might be arrested, which they feared they would be in 2014 if, if the Congress government came back to power. Um, so one of the reasons, one of the reasons in 2014, to the, uh, when the RSS got involved in a big way in the elections, according to them, was because they feared that uh, their top leaders would be arrested if the Congress came back. came back. Now, whatever that may be, so 
it is always beneficial for them for to have a BJP government because it gives them an umbrella, it gives them a cover, it facilitates them, it gives them resources, resource, uh, it, it uh, has sympathetic people within administration, within uh, security agencies, within um, judiciary probably even, where there are people sympathetic to the ideology and which helps them. And so you cannot have a better environment than this. So they might not like the BJP or many leaders in the BJP, but according to them, it doesn't matter. That's the best we can have. And let's have it and continue to support it. Where do you see the RSS evolving from here? They already have rebranded themselves. As you say, BJP is in power. Where where does the RSS go from here? So there are... Um, one of the things um, sometimes people mistake about the um, uh, objective of that, or not objective, the methodology of the RSS is that um, sometimes it is it is um, how should I put it? Confused with uh, the methodology is confused with uh, a certain corporate methodology or a, a company methodology, for example, where a company might have um, sympathetic people in a government or they might they might have people who would help them facilitate something in the rss's case it's that's not the case it is not that there is an rss person in the in, in the government the prime minister himself many leaders themselves a large number of mps they are all rss people it is not they're representative. They are RSS. They are ideologically being trained by the organization. So it is the organization which has provided these people. Even uh, And this permeates to all levels. So one of the objectives of the founder, uh, uh, founder Hergewar, was that his, in his vision, the RSS would have about Two three percent of the population, and this two three per percent of the population would be enough to sort of control the nation as a whole. So I've I've used an analogy of a neural network which can um, provide stimuli to the society as a whole, and the society would act according to the stimuli of this people who have been trained in R RSS ideology, and they would provide leadership to the to the population in general. And so because of that, um, even if even if the RSS is an organization shrinks, which it would inevitably shrink because the old methodology of uh, catching them young, training them for about 15, 20 years, appointing some as the pracharaks, getting some more talented people into leadership, that methodology would not be uh, they would not be able to continue that methodology for very long, very long periods of time. So, for example, even today, um, it has about, I think, approximately, I haven't uh, seen the last annual report, but I think approximately about 60,000 shakhas. Now, 60,000 shakhas in a country like India is not a huge number, even though it appears huge. Uh, for example, a state like Kerala, where it has one of the, within their organizational provinces, so Kerala has the largest number of shakhas. Um, that is about 10% of the 60,000 uh, shakhas. Now, Kerala has a population of just about three and a half crores, right? Which means that you have about uh, 6,000, um, for every 6,000 people, you have a shakha. But in a, in a state like UP, which has around, I think, eight somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 shakhas, where the population is about 200 million. Now, that would mean that uh, one shakha is for about 25,000 people. But the political influence in UP is much higher than it is in Kerala. It has not managed to get a single seat in Kerala. So the... the, um, the the rewards which the organization has in setting up more and more shakhas in states like Kerala 
are much lower than it is in a state like uh, Maharashtra or UP or Bihar. UP is a classic example where the rewards have been quite huge, disproportionately high. Uh, and so it wouldn't matter as long as you perfect the methodology of exerting influence with fewer number of people, and which is which is what the BJP also has done, right? So it has got only about uh, 37% of the vote, but it has got more than 300 seats in, in parliament. So it has proven that you don't need a whole huge spread out voting population in its favor. It just needs a critical consolidated voting. I mean, strategic voting is good enough for them. And it's not as if the number is small. They've got, they got around 230 million votes last time. Um, and that's a growth compared to 170 million in 2014. It's the same, even in a state where they've lost. So, for example, in a state like uh, Bengal, uh, compared to 2019, they have lost only about 3% of vote share. So, uh, they still have a substantial chunk of about 30, 37%, I think 37 or 38, if I remember right. That is what the uh, number was in Bengal. So from 40% last time in 2019. So it is not as if the influence has really eroded. But it remains there. And that is a base to build upon. Which means the RSS person does not need to be need to expand too much. It just needs to expand its ideology and reach its ideology to as many people as possible to realize its dream, its vision. And uh, modern means of communication, social media, Twitter, uh, WhatsApp, for instance, is almost tailor-made for RSS propaganda. So one of the things which uh, RSS does is uh, its presence, projection, and propaganda, right? So one is the presence itself in so many locations. Then it can project it as uh, much larger. The presence is much larger. And the rest of it is taken care of by propaganda. In fact, projection itself is a uh, function of propaganda. And the route marches, the huge congregations sometimes they hold, the uniformed people which keep them distinct from the rest of the people, all of these things help in projecting this. And since it's the political party which it mentored is in power and continues to be in power, and if it remains in power in the next elections, which means that it continues to be a magnet for more and more people, it, it sort of has a network effect. It sort of snowballs, and that itself is good enough to help it. It doesn't need a huge organization anymore. It can do with a smaller, a shrinking organization, but exert the same kind of influence on uh, on the on, on the country, on the government, on society in general. Dinesh, we are coming to the end of this conversation. I know you spend a lot of time researching this book. What do you think was the one key takeaway about the book that you found out at the end of your reporting that was both perhaps baffling or something that you feel is not really quite well known about the RSS? Oh, well... Uh... That's an interesting question. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it. That that what is that one thing which I could mention as one? Um, see, uh, I would say this. Uh, perhaps this is the one that I I started researching the RSS sometime in two thousand and thirteen, much before the book uh, project came to me. Um, the first thing was to, uh, the first time I, encountered, let me push, start from here. The first time I, I, I met with the, the RSS current chief Mohan Bhagwat was in, I think, sometime around 2010 or 11, where uh, he had come to, uh, he, had, he was releasing a book, which was written by a friend of mine. Um, he was a, he was a strat, you know, strategic expert was running a, 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 an organization called Strategic Insights in Bombay. He had written a book on why India should not aspire to be a superpower, but a great nation. And it was interesting because 
uh, he's not an RSS man. And uh, I, I knew him from much before. And uh, Mohan Bhagwat had chosen to release his book. And we had, uh, and his name is Sandeep Vaslekar. And Sandeep Vaslekar had written a, a cover story for Forbes magazine. I was at Forbes magazine at that time, Forbes India magazine. Forbes magazine based on his book, but it was an Independence Day special issue. And he had written a piece for us on similar lines. So he had uh, invited me to his book release and I'd gone there. And after the book release, I had met with uh, Mohan Bhagwat and uh, frankly, I was quite intrigued by his speech and it what appeared like a very clear thinking of what they want and what they what the RSS is, is about. And at that point of time, Mohan Bhagwat was not a well-known man. Um, he was not a well-known man until 2014, really. Um, and so that is when I started uh, reading up on the RSS and started building my contacts and um, interacting with people in the RSS extensively and uh, trying to understand what it is. And then in 2014, uh, I wrote a cover story for the Caravan magazine. It was called the RSS 3.0, which was um, explaining it, 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 it explaining how the RSS has gotten heavily involved in the 2014 elections and how it has brought BJP to the cusp of power. It was the it was a profile of Mohan Bhagwat, but telling the RSS story through that. Even then, I was quite uh, baffled by the contradictions that organization had. Had too many contradictions. It was just not you talk to one person, uh, and then you go ahead and talk to another person. You get two completely different perspectives of what the organization is. So I started thinking probably this is about the organization, that the organization is about itself. It's quite narcissistic. Then later I realized it is not because the, the way the organization doesn't encourage personality cults and Narendra Modi is an exception. Uh, I figured that, okay, this is, not, this is not possible then. Then what is it that makes this organization tick? And that is when I realized, and later on reporting for this book, that is when I realized that how remarkably the organization has stayed um, to its original um, goals. And I couldn't fathom that an organization could think in, in terms of 100 years or 200 years or 300 years. It was really long term. Um, we hear of, you know, five-year roadmaps, 10-year plans, sometimes even 25-year vision documents. Sometimes you hear companies say that. Sometimes you hear other organizations say that. But you don't hear about 100, 200-year-old visions, you know, or dreams. So, I mean, I, can't, I can only call them dreams. You, you can't call them visions uh, of having a united country ultimate glory and stuff like that but the belief and from the very beginning in 1925 when it was established those things have been enshrined and they continue to be continue to remain unchanged even today the tactics have changed the organization has adapted uh, to even technology for instance i mean the speed with which the organization adapted to social media was disconcerting almost um, the way the organization um, decided that it um, earlier it was a closed organization, hardly people hardly spoke to anyone. Even the leaders did hardly gave interviews to people outside their own um, own publications, for instance, or associated publications. But then, post two thousand nine, post uh, Mohan Bhagwat became the chief, the outward reach, the the external reach of the organization suddenly increased manifold. And more and more people were encouraged from within the organizations to talk to the people, talk to people. So I, I couldn't figure why this was happening suddenly. I realized it much later when I was writing the book, almost like an epiphany, that they have realized, the organization has realized that it cannot continue to exist with its tried and tested methodology of what they call man-making or character building over 10, 15, 20 years, getting a person uh, captive for 15, 20 years, it is not possible anymore. 
and it needs to adapt and it it changed so quickly and built capability so quickly that it was unbelievable but at the same time its original goals remain the same it remains an organization which is targeting very very long term i don't know probably the chinese communist party builds uh, that long scenarios or maybe the us military or us government does probably i don't know of any organization which does this kind of long term scenarios but they do they do have that and they keep adapting to it keeping that one thing in mind and they continue to uh, go on that path irrespective of what comes in their way it's it's remarkable it is it is very disconcerting the single mindedness of it dinesh thank you so much for joining us today thank you thank you thank you so much for having me here it was a pleasure